0: Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eric Johnson and Alicia Swami. And today we are interviewing Michael
1: Lawler. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Hello everyone, Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this, who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like CIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consult here at themoldguyinc.com slash connect. That's the slash C O N N E C T. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. You wrote an interesting paper that we want to discuss with you
0: on fungal shrapnel found in the atmosphere. <laughs> Tell us more, Michael. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that, that phrase had some Lasting power. <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically, we, so I'm, a, I'm an atmospheric scientist and aerosol researcher. And so basically, we're, we go to different locations and try to understand how particles form in the atmosphere of different sorts. And so basically, we're sampling over some fields in Oklahoma and identified something we hadn't seen before. Basically, we saw new signals in the in the mass spectrometer that we weren't familiar with, and it turned out that they were fungal parts. So we identified uh, chitin, which is sort of the structural polysaccharide biopolymer that makes up the cell walls of, for example, fungal spores, and these sort of sugar alcohols like mannitol that are sort of part of the goop of the inside of, of the fungal spores. And yeah so the the surprise was basically you know we're kind of the perspective we're coming from is you know I'm looking at uh, something that we call new particle formation in the atmosphere where particles will form out of gas phase species so gases will condense form a nucleate nucleus and then grow to a particle of, you know thousands or millions of molecules so that's what we were looking for so these really sm- so the small particles we identified in, on a scale of tens of nanometers so thousands and thousands of times smaller, narrower than a human hair. We expected that sort of particle down there. But what we found were these little bits of fungus. Yeah, this fungal shrapnel, apparently from large intact spores, which are, you know, on the size of microns, so a thousand times larger, that had broken up in the atmosphere to form these small bits, which we identified as the main, the main gist of the work.
2: Why did you call it fungal shrapnel?
0: I thought it sounded memorable because they—it's almost certainly from bursting. So the uh, so when these spores get released into the atmosphere, changes in atmospheric conditions appear to be able to explode them. So like basically, if you get the relative humidity goes up, it's it's called osmotic bursting. So basically, you are you have this really you know solute rich section inside the cells. And so there's an osmotic pressure that the like water from the atmosphere wants to get in there and basically fill up that volume with more water, and then it at some point it can rupture the cell wall, and then and then they explode. So they're like little mini mini fungal explosions.
2: Yeah, it sounds like your choice of words really conveys a, a sense of pathogenesis here that you attach some really <laughs> savage importance to this kind of process
0: ha huh. hmm i I hesitate to uh, speculate on the pathog- pathogenicity at this point, so we what we know is as far as the identity of these of these particles is that they were fungus, so that's that 's about the extent of it, so that there's not not that many other materials that have both that chitin bit and the the sugar alcohols that sort of clued us in it. The- that's what it was, you know. If it were more plant matter, we might expect some something more like cellulose as a as a structural bit. And the fact that it had, you know, similar bursting events had been seen in the Amazon. And researchers looking at larger particles had speculated that those little those bursts, the little particles, could come from fungus because they know they they can take they can take fungal cells on the microscope slide and expose them to high RH and explode them so they they know that they can burst but our study essentially identified that yes that's really what these little bits of material are in the atmosphere sometimes is is broken up fungus but we don't know anything about the the genera or species or any other compounds that might be present in there you know are whether this is something that has mycotoxins or not the, the particular species that burst, we don't know from from our study we, we didn't have that kind of you know precision or ability to detect those sort of trace trace com- components of the of the fungus
2: well it sounds like this dovetails perfectly with kawasaki's disease one of the peculiar observations about this strange disease in japan typically among children where they have this horrific immunological response to some unknown agent they've narrowed it down a little bit but the main thing they've discovered was that Kawasaki's disease is associated with dust clouds from China. And yet, the, it's where the dust settles, not where it originates, that this immunological response to candida species has been observed. Have any Kawasaki's disease hmm. researchers c- contacted you?
0: No, not yet. That's the first I've heard of Kawasaki's disease.
2: The famous virus hunter, Dr. So Ian the... Lipkin, took note of that. How peculiar it is that this immunological response is where the the atmosphere, the dust, these particulates settle, mm-hmm. but not where they mm-hmm. originate.
0: That's interesting. So the uh, the suggestion is that there's some sort of atmospheric aging process that matters for uh, generating this immunological
2: response. Yeah, some sort of nucleation process in the upper atmosphere that turns something that is a macromolecule into a nanoparticle.
3: Ah.
0: Hmm. Now, let me think about that. So, so the what is is it a presumably some sort of protein that is the actual agent that uh, affects people immunologically?
2: They haven't narrowed it is down. That known? Yet. Mm-hmm. It, they've they've said that it's associated with some kind of products from, from yeast and smuts in Canada. So they got as far as saying that it's fungal in nature, but they don't know if it's proteins or the structure or the beta glucans or what. Mm-hmm but it's Mm -hmm. just incredibly amazing that you wouldn't have the disease where this substance emanates from. And it isn't until it goes through the upper atmosphere and then falls on Japan that it creates this type of illness. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I don't know if I would jump to nucleation, a nucleation process necessarily. I mean, I could imagine also like oxidation in the atmosphere could could break down parts of parts of the the organisms release release what's in there. Yeah.
2: Well, it does seem to be associated with the shift from macromolecules to nanoparticle size, but beyond that, we're not quite sure what's going on.
0: So the the macromolecules are present as part of the structure of the, the organism, right? They're in there already, so. I mean, so the nanoparticles, I guess you're thinking are are somewhat larger than the macromolecules.
2: Oh, I'm thinking that the macromolecules, the bundles and clusters and aggregates, the fragments, the spores that are all going up into the atmosphere are somehow breaking down and descending in a more pathogenic nanoparticle form, which can go deeper into the lungs, into the blood, and even penetrate the blood-brain barrier.
0: Okay. Yeah, I guess when I think of I think of macromolecules on like a similar scale to nanoparticles size wise, I'd say like large large particle like organism fragments could break down into nan- into nanoparticles. Yeah, I think that's yeah definitely definitely a possibility. I think that's I think they show that for the you know this, this idea of like the thunderstorm asthma. That, yes. the you know this is you bring you bring particles up they're exposed to higher RH conditions where they're more more likely to rupture and then you can have a downdraft where you where you, you have these ruptured smaller bits that might be um yeah more generate more of an aller- allergic or, or pathogenic response so something- yeah,
2: the, the antigens in thunderstorm asthma they go well we know what it is and yet why doesn't it cause the same kind of illness until after it goes through the thunderstorm process,
0: mm, right? Yeah, this, the the breaking up process is definitely your expand. If you have you know a single several micron size spore, I mean, you can break that up into thousands of uh, nanoparticles. I think I just read an estimate about maybe like on the order of a thousand droplets for the breakup of of a pollen, as an example. I think I read that today. So yeah, I mean, a couple orders of magnitude more particles so that, and that are smaller, that could potentially penetrate deeper into the lungs. So it's, I mean, that is definitely plausible that that's, that that processing is important to generate some of these responses.
2: I think that makes sense. And yet, even with the reduction down to nanoparticle size, the pathogenesis is so striking. I mean, the immunological reaction, like comparable to a Stevens-Johnson reaction so some the immune system goes absolutely ballistic for reasons unknown and now i'm not a chemist mm. but you know i've read a little bit and i've got a bit of an imagination and i've been reading about chemical conversions with a halogenated alkane reaction substitution reaction where you can actually add an atom to an existing molecular structure and completely alter its pathogenesis Mm-hmm. So is it yeah, possible it was little... that in the upper atmosphere, the combination of ultraviolet light and the chemical reactions that are taking place in that milieu are somehow causing this kind of substitution reaction process?
0: It's not crazy. Yeah, I mean the I, molecule of bio, you know, biological biogenic molecules that get into the atmosphere are almost certainly going to be oxidized. You know, they they're in a more reduced form in in your body in general, and then in the, the atmosphere is an oxidizing environment, whether it's an OH radical formed from water vapor and ozone, or whether it's a chlorine radical formed from chlorine in the upper atmosphere. But given enough time, if, if, a, if a, a biogenic molecule persists in the atmosphere, it's going to be oxidized. The extent to which it's going to get substituted, if you're going to get like halogens like chlorine ad- adding in, that depend versus you know just breaking it up into smaller smaller molecules that depends on the stru- on the structure the bond structure but yeah of course you know every molecule that if it's exposed to atmospheric oxidants is is going to be oxidized in the, in the atmosphere over time so it, they can certainly undergo changes. The question is just whether you know what's what's most likely that they break down into into smaller smaller bits that may May be less harmful, or that they something else adds on that initiates some new biological effect when, when it contacts somebody. Yeah, both seem possible depending on the well, molecule.
2: Nanopathology suggests that the reducing down to that, that scale can make a molecule far more harmful because it has a surface energy that allows it to penetrate the defenses in our lungs, actually, go right through the blood and somehow Mm -hmm. escape all the mechanisms we have to remove this and eventually get into the brain. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, right. The small, yeah, the nanoparticles have have fascinating properties.
2: Yeah, uh, your article really caught my attention because I've been fascinated by the idea of something going up into the atmosphere and then coming down more pathogenic ever since the 1985 Lake Tahoe mystery illness, which you know today by another name, chronic fatigue syndrome.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: because a whole bunch of us got sick at Lake Tahoe in 1985, and we had some kind of immune suppression, viral infections lit up like crazy. This resulted in the overt manifestation of EBV reactivation, which nearly everybody has, but they never could figure out why a whole town or an entire region would suddenly have problems controlling the the common kissing disease, Epstein-Barr virus. What happened at the time that the pollution cloud from the San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural region, just upwind was...
0: That's where I'm from. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that, that brown cloud was getting a little bit higher every year. And we'd go up hiking on Donner Summit. We'd look down at all the poor people down in the San Joaquin and go, oh boy, I feel it's sorry for you guys yeah. having to breathe that crap.
0: Yeah, yeah, it can
3: get really bad.
2: And I I actually thought The day that that cloud comes up and ruins Lake Tahoe, there's going to be riots. People are going to go ballistic. (laughs) I mean, up here, you look across the length of the lake and see the mountains 40, 50 miles away, green trees. I mean, just the air was so clear and pure. And that changed relatively quickly. Just in the 1985 period, the brown cloud finally crested the mountains and filled up the Lake Tahoe basin. And that's when we started having an algal bloom. All of the buildings that had toxic mold, the sick buildings that affected people a little bit now made people violently ill. And the only common denominator that I could see was that the uplift, the orographic lift by the shape of the mountains, forcing that brown cloud to a specific elevation and then dropping back down on us somehow. Influenced the pathogenesis of the molecules in such a way that the sick buildings were worse, and the algal bloom produced toxins that were like we'd never seen before.
0: I guess my my read of those observations would, I, my hypothesis would be, yes, I, like bringing in that pollution from the valley. I mean. If you're susceptible to any sort of lung issues, I mean, you're putting a bigger impact on yourself if you have these, like, you know, small PM. I would be hesitant to attribute any algal blooms to it, because I just I don't think that there's that. Yeah, I would be more inclined to say to point. I've, to
2: I've only seen one study Population so far. Population
0: growth or change, or change the growth.
2: But somebody actually did a study where they. Tried exposing algal bloom cyanobacteria to nanoparticles and it grew more luxuriantly and put out more toxins. Huh. So, this is all pretty groundbreaking stuff. Hmm. that. Do you know Professor Anthony Wexler from UC Davis?
0: Uh, not personally, but somewhat familiar with their
2: artwork. You, his work is, is pretty, it sounds like fun. He's got a van that. It's got loaded with sensors that, can, that are very accurate that can detect nanoparticles. And he drives his van all over the place looking for nanoplooms.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: That's pretty cool. So he goes all over California, all over the place with this van and he finds these nanoplumes. and he doesn't know what the source is, what's producing these nanoparticles. Why is there such a high concentration in certain areas? I mean, you can actually trace it by doing a a grid pattern down to where the source is. So you can find the location pretty easily. That's very simple, but what's producing them. That remains a mystery. Um, I read, I read years ago that if fungi are exposed to the constituent elements, certain metals, the, the base substances of certain types of human produced pollution, they can produce nanoparticles for instance aspergillus is very good at producing silver nanoparticles they can actually use it in, in the production of silver nanoparticles uh-huh. so it seemed to me that fungi were an extremely good suspect as a source point for nanoplumes
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah i mean I, would, I will say that the yeah sort of the default the default view on seeing nanoscale particles in the atmosphere so like less than 100 nanometers is that they formed for, out of oxidation of gas phase molecules and nucleation of small particles into bigger particles? You know, from things like sulfuric acid, ammonia, from reacted organics that come from trees or or even from you know anthropogenic sources. And so I don't, yeah, I don't I haven't read the Wexler papers that talk about about this, but. I think the, that's the default view, is that if you see these really small particles that probably came from molecules, weren't, weren't, bio, weren't from the breakdown of larger, for example, biological particles into smaller particles. That was one of the, that was one of the new things about our paper, is that in general, in the, in the atmosphere, people think of particles as growing. So it's, it's unusual when you identify particles that are really small that didn't come didn't grow up from small sizes that's kind of new thinking so i think it's for me it's still open how frequent that sort of thing is that you could break down particles for example from larger biological particles but the production of nanoparticles out of the gas phase out of molecules individual molecules is well documented and i wouldn't we you know there's been I've been involved in this work for several years and people have been doing this for a couple of decades and, and that, that science is fairly well established now, at least that that happens. But are there other pathways to make nanoscale particles in the atmosphere that we're still discovering? I think our paper shows yes. So I think, I think that's, yeah, it's, that area is still open how frequent that sort of thing occurs.
2: Well, when I to put your down. information together with mine, and the observation of Kawasaki disease and thunderstorm asthma, it, it seems like it's a possibility that nanoparticle production from fungi is being lofted by these storms, goes through some kind of conversion, some kind of process where they come down more pathogenic than when they went up.
0: Well, that, I mean, for that, I would, I would point purely to, to the size change. That's the easiest explanation to me is like big spores go up into the clouds Break down into into small bits, and then the small bits are have more of a, a pathogenic effects. To me, that's the most straightforward hypothesis: is that the, the breakdown is is what's doing it. But I so think the, it's also possible that you have reactions occurring.
2: Yeah, well, it's the default view of of nucleation is aggregation, the increase in size, but all of a sudden we're seeing a different process, a reduction in size, and we look around for a, a process, something that might possibly do that? Well, the association with the uplift suggests tribostatic friction, a triboelectric action of all these molecules at high speed bumping off each other, producing a little electricity, lightning essentially, and being subjected to the atmospheric differential of the intense amount of electricity generated by the uplift of the air. And maybe this plays into What's breaking these down to nano size?
0: I, I, I did see that in the paper today when I, before I was, when I was preparing for this meeting. That that yeah, the apparently lightning may have an influence and may have a role to play in the in the breakup of, of particles in the upper in the atmosphere. I didn't know that before today. It's interesting.
2: Well, I, I've I've got a lot of really bizarre clues that I've been putting together for a long time, and one of them is the reaction that people with myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome have to change in the weather,
1: alterations mm-hmm. of
2: the weather. There's something about the weather that just absolutely knocks certain, certain disease entities flat. Mm. And a lot of times this is attributed to barometric pressure. People say, well, it's the change in, in the atmospheric pressure on the organs. But that never wow. made sense to me because we go through changes of atmospheric pressure all the time in a plane going up and down the hill in a, in a car. In fact, a lot of these barometric changes that we go through routinely are actually larger than what people complain about when a storm is coming. So maybe what they're overlooking is that the barometric pressure was just something that went along with the package, but it's really the electrical activity of the atmosphere that's creating this this effect.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Whether it's the electrical aspect or the like, the uplift and cooling and RH increasing yeah I would definitely point more to the weather that's associated with the change in the barometric pressure or the the atmospheric motions than to yeah squishing the organs. Not a biologist, but that would be my yeah mind. it just intuitive sense too
2: i mean it, it sounds more reasonable than just a change in in air, you know it's like they also attribute it to humidity, and yet we know well you don't get sick every time you jump in the shower, so it's probably not. The humidity per se.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of things that so you, you make. Right. You have some sort of combination of elements that it's hard to, hard to, you can't isolate them. Or if you do isolate them, you don't see the effect. But when you have the, the common elements together, be it, you know, high RH, thunderstorm, rain, maybe the right season, at least in the case of Oklahoma, there's definitely a seasonality to the to these release of, of biological particles from the from the surface. So yeah, once you have all those ingredients together, then yeah, that's what gives you a, a, an effect.
2: At least we can see by this discussion that to understand a phenomenon like Kawasaki's disease, one has to know more than just it's an illness in Japan. You have to know how it moves. You have to know that where it came from, the substance involved with what appears to be the causative agent didn't create that kind of effect where it came from, but rather mm-hmm. where it settled after going through the upper atmosphere.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read about that after, after we talk. That's very interesting.
2: Fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, putting these clues together, it's, it's amazing. It's fun. And it's like with the Dr. Professor Wexler's Weck- work on nanoplumes in California. Wouldn't it be cool to isolate the source points, go to where we know these plumes are coming from, take samples and see if we can't find nanoparticle production or increased nanoparticle production in microbial colonies.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. There's a lot, lots to unpack there. I mean, so for that, that may be that you have an, inc- imagine that you found that, I mean imagine that you discovered that if you have like, for some reason, maybe you have a, a like a bloom of a microbial bloom somewhere, I maybe mean, there's a natural lake, or for some reason you have a huge increase in I don't know whether it's the plankton or the bacteria. Something grows a lot, and then you associate it with an increase in, in nanoparticle formation in the atmosphere. So you have kind of you still have the two pathways to to think about. One is is it that they released a bunch of gas phase volatile organic compounds. That were oxidized in the atmosphere and went the traditional route, formed small particles. You know, maybe with the combination of some pollution or other things that are present in the atmosphere, and grew grew particles up. And then those particles are going to have a certain composition. It can be a lot of oxidized, you know, a lot of oxygen organic molecules. Probably no no biogenic toxins or anything like that. It's just going to be stuff that was chewed up in the atmosphere and blown together. Not to say that they couldn't be irritating to someone who bre- breathes them because they're small particles and they can eat lungs and they may still have a have an effect in there, but then the other pathway that you're looking at as well is there also the release of some biological particles that are larger that then are broken down in the atmosphere to small particles in which case on that pathway maybe you do you do actually have bio- real biogenic molecules in there, so if there are you know toxins or or yeah toxic. Molecules that are present as part of those original biological particles, then they might be in there. And if you breathe them in, that'll have its own its own effect. So I see two. Even observing that, I would see two possible pathways. With two inferences about what sorts of materials are actually going to be in those particles. They'll, they'll be different for
2: sure. But at least knowing about the mechanism, there's a starting point for further research. We know we have an idea of what we're looking for.
0: Yeah, no, no that's, if that would be it's always interesting to find. I mean, so we're other work that I've been involved in is looking at particle formation over the oceans. And so there's, there's definitely evidence that the first pathway that I, that I mentioned occurs that you have, yeah, if you have a strong biological production, there, there are certain, some compounds that, that ultimately come out of plankton, you know, plants floating, floating microscopic plants in the ocean that do lead to particle formation so in the in the sort of anthropogenic urban atmosphere a lot of particle formation comes from sulfuric acid so like you know we have we burn things sulfur dioxide comes out when you oxidize sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere it turns into sulfuric acid which is highly condensable it doesn't want to be a gas it wants to condense in the particle phase and interestingly over the ocean there's kind of a a similar pathway it's not we're not—it's not from burning stuff, but it's from the release of this compound called dimethyl sulfide, among among other sulfur-containing compounds. But it's another pathway for sulfur to get in the atmosphere, oxidizes and makes sulfuric acid, which can condense. You know, it wants to be in in the sort of particle phase and form new particles. So they're definitely, and that's that production is is bio. You know, it's from the dimethyl sulfide comes from biogenic sources. So it is, it's a pathway that we know about over the ocean that you produce small particles from biological activity and release, release of, of trace gases. So the extent to which that happens in, from you know, like microbes in other locations, I don't know if we know much about that over the land surface, I would say. Or, or lakes
2: I, I take it you're a great fan of the the London fog, the great London fog incident.
0: <laughs> fan. It, I mean yeah, we, we certainly certainly learned about that. <laughs> yeah, like a why bummer. was
2: it so pathogenic? I mean, for a short time, it was absolutely deadly.
0: Oh, that I don't know.
2: So they attribute the, the London fog, the incident where so many people, thousands of people died to sulfuric acid formation an inversion effect where somehow the atmospheric conditions were just right to concentrate all the particulates and create this sulfuric acid soup. But why did it happen so viciously? And why hasn't it happened on anything like that scale since?
0: Well, I mean, our fuels aren't perfect now, but we're using less sulfur than we were back then. I don't know when this occurred. I mean, I thought I was thinking just about London fog, smog oh, in, uh, in general but yeah there um, was
2: there was a famous event where all the conditions really conspired to cause in fact i i can't remember when it was it was a long time ago but it actually influenced a reduction in coal burning because they go mm-hmm. wow we, we've got to do something here we're gonna all be so sick that london will be in, uninhabitable
3: mm-hmm.
2: but yeah i mean just, our, our
0: I was, yeah, I mean, we're using way much, way less sulfur now in, in fuels than,
2: than we have in the past. So I guess we can cut this out if we need to. But one other thing that's been bugging me is people talk about chemtrails, the idea <laughs> that evil conspirators are flying airplanes around, leaving white clouds of toxic killer substances to depopulate the planet to make it a utopia for the survivors. Or,
0: Or pick your particular goal. But yes,
2: yeah. It's like, that seems a bit far-fetched. First of all, it'd be very difficult to get away with it. I mean, hiding stuff inside airplanes is not easy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many problems with that. It's like, where do you even start? It's, it's, like, it's like, you want to make someone sick, and instead of putting like some poison in their drink, it's mm-hmm. like spritzing it a thousand kilometers away from them and letting it disperse into the atmosphere and then that's going to get them. It's, it's preposterous. I mean, how many, how many molecules do you think you could get down here to a single person from a aircraft?
2: There's so many problems with that theory. It's like, why, why do people go there? Especially if there's a easy explanation to mine. Yeah. Yeah. The, Contrails are lingering longer than they used to. My my grandfather, when World War II, when they were first developing aircraft bombers, propeller-driven aircraft that could reach an altitude where they could create these kind of trails, these contrails, it doesn't have to be a jet. A turboprop can do it. Well, these were so amazing that people were fascinated at planes leaving a white cloud in the sky, and he was out there taking pictures. But These things, they didn't typically last for a long time. They dissipated fairly quickly, and they did seem to act differently than today, where a plane goes by and it will form a cloud that drifts off. I mean, it disperses and it blanks out the entire sky. So isn't it possible that what we're seeing here is simply altered effects of nucleation by the different kinds of particles that we put into the atmosphere?
0: Hmm. I mean, the... I'd say the, the, the controls on when there are gonna be contrails or not are pretty much I mean the, the particles they're forming on are well, what are the exhaust from the aircraft. I mean, I, I think that what what other background particles may be around are way less important than the particles that are actually being delivered by the aircraft from combustion to the atmosphere right then. I think that's what's that the droplets are forming on those particles. And whether whether those have changed the composition much over the years i mean certainly i can imagine shed engines have changed in their efficiency over the past several decades and it might change the size of the particles you know big bigger particles it's easier to get water to condense on them small particles it's more difficult So changes like that could have an effect but really a huge effect is just the atmospheric condition on a given day i mean for a given aircraft flying on a day where, you know, you have like just a little bit more water vapor in the air, you could have a contrail versus not a contrail. So, I mean, you'll see, you'll see sometimes big jetliners, big old contrails. Sometimes you'll see a big jet, at least here in Colorado, where it's, you know, it's pretty dry. Sometimes you'll see those jetliners fly by and not make a contrail. So that's, it Depends. It's, the yeah, atmospheric you- conditions are pretty important.
2: Have you ever studied the Sierra wave, the lenticulars over Lake Tahoe?
0: I have not studied them. I've definitely observed lenticulars here, not not in the Sierras.
2: Well, directly over Carson City, there's something called the Sierra wave. It's a great sailplane soaring site because the hmm. basin, the way the prevailing wind hits the mountains, it causes an oscillation of the airflow. So the initial mountain range causes a orographic lift, the air is deflected up at a, a sharp angle, goes into the basin, drops down really fast. I mean, vertically, just absolutely vertically. And then that upwelling bounces back up again on the downwind range and causes a, a wall of air for the air behind it. It it runs into this upward deflected air, has to go somewhere, goes straight up. So they set sailplane soaring records here by capitalizing on this Sierra wave lift formation. Mm-hmm. But as an atmospheric mm-hmm. phenomenon for studying the particles, it's ideal. I mean, it's it's incredible because here we've got something that is causing more or less the ultimate in vertical with, without a thunderstorm present. It's the next best thing. Sure. Yeah. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. that's yeah, kind that's of interesting. what... And my thought was that these particulates, if subjected to that kind of upwelling, not only could they be altering their characteristics in such a way as we see with Kawasaki's disease, but this could change the rate of nucleation in such a way that it would scrub the air. In effect, it would cause all the crap, the volatiles, the acid, acid rain, essentially, to form in one particular area and precipitate all the crap that it scrubs out of the air in one very small location.
0: I agree with you that, yeah, it's, it's an interesting test case for looking at, the, at what can happen to particles that are directly lofted and maybe under conditions where you don't have this RH increase like you have with a thunderstorm. And rather, you'll have it's going to get drier over there, that air, air going up and, and water more likely to precipitate out without. Without having that uplift bringing up more more moisture, like you get in a thunderstorm, but you're wondering if it might be performing a useful service by removing stuff from the atmosphere in this region.
2: Well, um, not so useful if you happen to be under it. Uh huh. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: I don't know how to think about that. So, yeah. What What is What would you wish for as an atmosphere? atmospheric cleaning i mean you have really the best atmospheric cleaning is is rain you know that's if nothing you know the the pollen fungal thunderstorm asthma stuff is the sort of weird exception where the storm is more generating problems in some in some ways rather than fixing them but for Any other kind of particle type, you know, smog, pollution, particles, whatever. I mean, it's rain that does the best job of of clearing them out. So, in the, I would say, you, if you have this strong uplifting situation, or graphic uplifting situation where you don't, you're not generating rainfall in general from that. You're, yeah, you're going to basically pack on, you'll pack on whatever oxidizable stuff onto the particles that are there. They'll grow bigger. They'll coagulate into larger particles, potentially the bigger the particles are, the more easily they deposit out without rain. So potentially some effect there and the bigger they are, you know, the more difficult they are to breathe deep into your lungs. So yeah, I mean, on the, on the whole, it might be, if you could pick whether you breathed air that came out of that outflow or not, maybe you would choose to, but I think probably yeah, compared to raining out, nothing, nothing quite does the job like rain for clearing the
2: atmosphere. But if one were looking for an examples of this effect, of the atmosphere, the shape of the mountains, the local conditions, scrubbing something out of the air and precipitating it on a certain geographic location, are there any easy clues that we could look at to tell us if such a thing is happening? And as it turns out, during this outbreak that I'm talking about, 1985, all the frogs disappeared. The frogs just absolutely vanished.
0: This is the and, Kawasaki in Japan oh, well, issue? I, I,
2: no, I, I think it's a similar, a parallel. But this happened in Lake Tahoe with the Lake Tahoe Mystery Illness. Oh, that yeah, got right,
0: gotcha, the incline village. Yeah.
2: yeah, because I was mm-hmm. looking for environmental mm-hmm. clues at that time. Because mm-hmm. when you see a whole bunch of people in a very small area getting sick, North Lake Tahoe, And you can't find any Uh logical explanation for it. But all of a sudden, this pollution Uh swept over the mountains. I thought, Mm -hmm. well, given what I know, is it possible that something was concentrated out of the air of the San Joaquin Valley in a really spectacular way? Mm -hmm. And just at this exact time, Uh all the frogs really started suffering. And, of course, Mm -hmm. the people studying frogs noticed this. They were extremely alarmed by this. And somebody actually did a study. They took healthy frogs from the Lassen area, brought them down to an environment in the Sierra Nevada mountains at Lake Tahoe, and the frogs all got sick and died. They took sick frogs up to the Mount Lassen area, and the frogs recovered.
3: Okay. (laughs) And I thought, wow,
2: that's testable. That tells us that something Mm -hmm. came in, and it's getting even to the very tops of the mountains, something on the wind your atmospheric shrapnel whatever you want to call it but something got precipitated here in this region that didn't happen elsewhere
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and if that's something yeah, it, fits the model for creating an illness in frogs why not humans it's an interesting
0: hypothesis uh, yeah to me it's that it sounds like it would need a almost like an atmospheric case study because when you tell me like about air you know, air tends to disperse, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of rare to think of like, you know, some pocket of air, like for example, the, if it gets, if it gets lofted really high, so if it gets lofted, it's going to have a tendency to, you know, dissipate and it's not going to come down in one place most, most likely. So it's, a so I don't, I think I would think of it differently than the, the sort of lofting hypothesis. But as far as, yeah, I guess, I guess what I would say if, if your hypothesis is that, that you got a special case of San Joaquin Valley pollution in the Lake Tahoe area that drove this, I think you would have, you'd have to look at, well, you know, maybe how frequently did that pollution, you know, crest over in, you know, over some, over some time period, did it, did we get to a point where now it's happening with regularity and it didn't before. And like, that was like the switch that turned or, was it like there was this one particular event that that was yeah remarkable in some way whether it be like the source regions it passed over in the valley or the uh, it just my question would be was it some really special atmospheric case that drove that could have driven this or did did transport the air transportation transport times and conditions change like over time. Like you have like almost no events where this pollution got up, and all of a sudden you have have more events. I think that would be the way I would try to start testing that hypothesis. Is this it'd be? I mean, it'd be like well, a sort of a, atmospheric reanalysis.
2: Yeah, if if there's different properties of nucleation at different altitudes, we'd have a stratification of this effect. So my working hypothesis is that up at the top of the pollution cloud, there was a stratification of this highly concentrated form of a particular type of nucleation that drained drained this type of toxic crap down on us. And that over time, as the pollution cloud got higher and the microbial ramifications of this toxin reverberating through the entire environment and upsetting all of our ecological balances it sort of went back to a a equilibrium where the toxic effect is not so pronounced still here to a certain extent but nothing like the sudden impact of when the pollution first crested the mountains Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah it's an interesting hypothesis it sounds difficult to test i mean the i'm curious about the so that, that seems like sort of like in the past, it would be difficult, almost difficult to find the answer. I mean, it sounds like, so you, you know, do you have measurements of, of like lake water quality over, you know, X time? And, and do you have those like, uh, like the transports, the atmospheric transport over time? I mean, that, that's kind of knowable.
2: Yeah, um, Actually, we do. Yeah, the Tahoe Environmental Re- Research Center that monitors the lake quality, the algal blooms. Mm -hmm. They've been extremely concerned about this since that time. And they've been taking daily, daily measurements. And interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, at the time, there was an intense clouding effect of the water. In fact, people were panic-stricken about what was happening to the lake. The clarity was Mm -hmm. dropping so fast. They're going, within a short period of time, this is going to look like a green, mucky lake. Mm -hmm. And yet, a couple things have happened recently. Yeah, we've tried to reduce pollution as much as possible, but the lake clarity has stopped dropping and the frogs are coming back.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It, I, I've been watching the frogs, all these, I was very disturbed that, that our frogs disappeared. And I wondered, is this going to be permanent? Are we mm-hmm. always, you know, is it always, and no, thankfully they are returning. So whatever happened, it's, it's decreased.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Now they the yeah, researchers just... tell me that we can't go back in time. So even if you have some valid points, it's they won't even discuss it with me.
3: That
0: that is the problem. It's like if you, it's an interesting. It would be nice to know the answer to it. It could inform other things. But I finding the answer. I, I maybe they feel like it requires data that we don't have, and that could be the problem. I'm intrigued by your this the this kawasaki syndrome this is something that's this is like a repeated event yeah. that occurs okay mm-hmm. so that's i mean that sounds like a place where science can help you know as like atmospheric measurements could help if you if you know the source regions for the material and the and the yeah you know, where the impacts are felt and you can make observations in both places then you might get somewhere
2: that's in the interesting. Na- National Geographic special, Strange Days on Planet Earth, they talked about the peculiar occurrence of respiratory diseases in the Caribbean, in Trinidad. I mean, formerly the best air anywhere on the planet. And these kinds of lung diseases were unknown. All of a sudden, the kids are coming down with asthma, and they have sick building syndrome, and they've had all kinds of problems with fungus. Mm-hmm. And, it's just taken off like a rocket. And they trace this back to the drying of Lake Chad in Africa. Huh. And this, this drying of the lake is putting African dust into the upper atmosphere, crossing the Atlantic. And where this dust wanes down, it is causing fungal diseases and respiratory effects that are in excess of where this material comes from. Mm-hmm. And they found that the coral is bleaching, the coral is dying, and testing of the health of the coral indicates, of all things, activated herpes viruses and fungal infections, such as the one that they traced directly back to Lake Chad, Aspergillus Sidawi. So they say we have a species of Aspergillus that came from Lake Chad, and we can genetically test this. And now this stuff is growing in the coral, and this seems to be associated with the increased fungal illness in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Crazy. Yeah. So thanks to my uh, interest in the upwelling of the atmosphere and the idea that something about moving the air up and then bringing it back down rapidly Mm -hmm. somehow makes it more pathogenic than where the material came from. This has been on my mind for a long time. So I've been collecting Mm -hmm. stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I guess I gave my two senses. I think breakup is plausible in at least some cases. I don't know. As far as trans- transport, I mean, in the thunderstorm, it makes sense that things break up. You have up- updrafts into wet air and then this osmotic pressure, fine. But this long, long-range long transport from Africa to, to Trinidad, what's going to happen? You'll have, I mean, I guess it's, I don't know how moist that air is. Maybe. It- Less so, and then transporting it elevation could be other could be other processes that, but breakup I still think is still plausible. Maybe not through the like too much water breakup, but but yeah, yeah whether well, like breakup it being, or, or or is
2: it being oxidation. reduced down to nanoparticle form so it's more bioavailable?
0: Mm-hmm. It's an interesting hypothesis. Um, yeah, Pla- plausible.
2: So, I, yeah. I know I've thrown a lot of stuff at you, but basically that's what we do here at Exposing Mold. We're kicking around ideas, trying to think about all these strange things that we're seeing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's cool. I I, I always enjoy the uh, kicking kicking around ideas opportunities. That's, yeah, you think about things differently for sure if you do that.
2: Wait till Keely yeah. gets going. Then you'll really hear some bizarre stuff. <laughs> you
0: don't want me to tell that story, do you?
2: So No. Oh, we can save that for another time.
1: Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to the Exposing Mold team. We are passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold has destroyed many lives. It has become part of our life's mission to expose this truth and educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Our work is vital because of the lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners. Keely, Eric, and Alicia have firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and we make sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that is performed. Our team's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to patients keep us motivated. We know firsthand just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health, the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know might be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and our team will work together to find a solution. Currently, Keely is offering environmental screenings, education on mold avoidance, Chinese medicine recommendations, and will screen you for past or current exposures. She will help you embrace mold avoidance as a lifestyle and teach you how your sensitivities and reactions act as a compass to recovery. If you need clarity on mold testing reports or remediation plans, she's your gal. Alicia specializes in developing mold avoidance strategies that meet your unique needs. She's experienced in extreme avoidance and can provide coaching for hotel, RV and trailer and campground living. Eric Johnson specializes in provider training offering mold injury, hypersensitization and patient relapse prevention education. Book your consult with one of our team members by visiting exposingmold.com slash consultations. Or you can also join our support group by visiting patreon.com slash exposing mold that's p a t r e o n dot com slash exposing mold thank you everyone this has been
0: really interesting and thank you for engaging us on on eric's theory of the effect of what we part of what we think we see happening with the chronic nature and severe injury of mold illness what he kind of walked you through was how he came to his theory based on the history and partially what he thinks is happening in the pathology of the illness so this was a great a great discussion sure thanks for having me he gave me some things to think about as well and yeah i wish you guys luck in figuring out your puzzles